group of podcasters who are professional speakers. Um, I am just a lowly academic. Um, my name is Emily Bloom. I'm Associate Director of the Heyman Center for Humanities. And I want to welcome you all here for the second day of our podcasting conference, The Unplugged Soul. Um, and I think we're going to get a lot of soul today based on the, the topics that I've seen so far. Um, so I just want to do a just quick introduction to the people who are speaking today. Um, we have a first panel that's called In Microphones Begin Responsibilities. And I'm afraid I might be responsible for that title. Um, <laughs> I picked this title because um, when everyone sent in their abstracts, they were very focused on issues of audience, um, the sort of intimacy of the medium, and how you kind of cultivate a sense of a listening public. And one of the first things I thought of was William Butler Yeats. Um, and I thought of the epigraph to his collection, Responsibilities, where he begins with a quote, in dreams begin responsibilities. And that quote really sort of spoke to what I felt like the three people who you're about to hear from today were addressing, which is the issue of sort of what is the responsibility of the person with the microphone? Um, and what kind of listening public can they and do they cultivate, right, by sort of speaking up on the microphone? And Yates was a particularly interesting example to me because he was a broadcaster. Um, he actually wrote a number of broadcasts, he spoke on the microphone, and he addressed you know, what he felt like was his sort of imagined audience, um, the people who were listening on the other side. And one of his ways of kind of thinking about audience um, is that a poem of his called The Fisherman, uh, where he says that he writes for a man who does not exist, a man who is but a dream. And I think that really speaks to kind of the imagined work that you have to do when you're speaking to an audience, especially when you can't see them, um, when you're not looking at them like I'm looking at you all today. So that was the long rationale. Um, and I think as we kind of address this topic and the topics today, I want to keep thinking about this issue of audience. Um, audience that isn't necessarily just a brain trust or a troll or someone who's sort of responding in a comment section, but someone that we're imaginatively shaping and creating. So without further ado, um, I'm going to introduce our three speakers today. Um, the first is Hilary Frank, who is the um, creator of The Longest, Shortest Time, which I think has just um, been nominated for a Webby. Is that right? Yeah. So vote, vote for her, vote for her, vote for the Kitchen Sisters. I think a bunch of people here are nominated. Um, and I'll just give a, a quick introduction to Hillary. Um, she's the host and creator of The Longest, Shortest Time. She is the author of the novels Better Than Running at Night, I Can't Tell You, and The View from the Top. Her radio work has aired on a variety of public radio programs, including This American Life, Morning Edition, All Things Considered, Studio 360, Marketplace, and Weekend America. I, feel, I have a feeling I'm going to be listing a lot of these, these places over and over again. Um, and the talk that she's giving today is called Podcasts Can Change the World, and in parentheses, at least a little. Um, our next speaker is Devin Taylor, um, who is currently the editor of Millennial Podcast. Devin is a freelance writer and editor living in New York City. She is the editor of Millennial, Gimlet, and Radiotopia. Previously, and this is where I first encountered her work, um, she was editor-in-chief of The Timber, an online magazine devoted to podcast reviews and curation. Okay, and her talk is New Ears. Our third speaker is Rachel Zucker, um, and Rachel is the host of Commonplace Podcast. She's also the author of nine books, 
Most recently, her memoir, Mothers, which details her relationship with her mother and various female mentors, and The Pedestrians, a double collection of prose and poetry. Zucker currently teaches poetry at New York University and is delivering a series of lectures around the country about the intersection of poetry, confession, disobedience, ethics, feminism, and the representation of self and others in art. So this is one reason I felt justified in, uh, in using a little bit of Yeats to begin today. Um, so Rachel's talk today is titled Less and Less and Less Alone. So I'll ask our three speakers um, to sort of come up here to the, the podium, and we will begin um, with Hillary Frank. Hello. So I got to tell you guys, I started my podcast The Longest Shortest Time for completely selfish reasons. Um, I had just had a baby that year, and um, I had a really rough childbirth and recovery. I was left unable to walk for the first two months of my daughter's life, and um, lived in a two-floor apartment in Philadelphia. and there were stairs in between the bedroom and the bathroom. And so I lived in our very dark, tiny living room, literally lived in there for two months on an air mattress while I had just had a baby so that I could have access to the bathroom. <laughs> and um, I wasn't able to be the kind of mother that I wanted to be. I wasn't able to get into the right position to breastfeed the baby. I wasn't able to get up to like change her diaper, I wasn't able to give her a bath. And while it's like nice to be able to delegate that stuff to people, like when you're a new mom, you want to be able to do that stuff for your kid. And so I felt very alone, and I also felt like there weren't a lot of other moms I was finding who were willing to be honest about what early motherhood was really like. And um, we. Uh, just a few months after my daughter was born, moved to a new town where I knew nobody. And I would try to have conversations with strangers about this stuff who had babies. And I just felt like we weren't connecting. So, But I had had over a decade of experience as a radio reporter. And I thought, well, if you put microphones under a person's face, then you have license to ask them anything. And they'll probably be more honest with you. That was my experience. So I started this podcast because it was a thing you could do. This is um, uh, over like six years ago now. So podcasting wasn't like a booming business like it is now, but it was a thing you could do um, you know, for no money and just put it out there. And so I started. Um, interviewing other moms about their struggles that were different from mine, and they made me feel less alone. And it was all about me feeling better, <laughs> and, and, I, and it worked. I did feel better. Um, but also, um, I've, I found that it was making other people feel better. And that was a surprise. Um, so I'm going to play you a clip from this first episode. Sorry, I'm going to play you a clip from one of the first episodes 
about my childbirth experience. As a strong person, you know, like physically, I like to think of myself as a strong person, you know, like physically strong. Um, I can beat most women I know in arm wrestling and, and way back when I was in middle school, when I wasn't good at pretty much anything having to do with gym, um, I knew that when we did the president's physical fitness challenge tests that I could bench press more than my own weight um, and that when we did the hang, like because the girls didn't have to do pull-ups, um, we just had to hang from the pull-up bar. When we did the hang, um, I knew that I would be the last girl hanging. Like all, all the popular girls would drop off long before me. And so um, whenever I felt terrified of childbirth, which was like pretty much the entire time I was pregnant, um, I would just remind myself of how strong I was. I, I'm one of those people who um, really kind of didn't want to have an epidural if I could at all avoid it not really to prove my strength, but because I had taken this natural childbirth class. And in that class, I learned that basically like an epidural or any kind of drugs that you get were, were just the first step in this long, slippery slope toward C-section. And I, I wanted to avoid you know, major surgery if, if at all possible. In, in that class, the teacher told us that 93% of the women who gave birth at this particular hospital got an epidural. Um, and, and I hate to say it now, I really, really hate to say it, but I judged those women. I thought, well, they gave in because they hadn't prepared well enough. And me, I'm, I'm preparing, you know, I'm, I'm taking this class, I'm doing my prenatal yoga, I'm reading the Ina Gaskin books. Um, you know, women have been doing this for thousands of years, and I'm strong and I'm ready. But it turned out that I couldn't do it naturally. I'm one of the 93%. And, and, and I still sometimes have my moments where I feel like um, I failed, like I failed at childbirth. So I mentioned in there a woman named Ina Mae Gaskin. And for those of you who don't know who she is, she's probably the most famous and influential midwife of our time. Um, she helped start a hippie commune in Tennessee called The Farm. Um, people travel from all over the place to give birth there um, naturally, or quote unquote naturally, w w without um, medication or surgery. And um, they have a very high success rate of that. And Ina Mae has written a couple books. One is called Spiritual Midwifery, and the other is called Ina Mae's Guide to Childbirth. And uh, these are books that I read when I was pregnant, and they're like really empowering. They, they acknowledge that birth is really hard, um, but also the, the, the way they're written, it makes you feel like, uh, well, if you learn the tricks of how to calm your body down, then um, you can overcome the hardships, and you can have like even an ecstatic labor. Uh, an orgasmic labor for some people. Um, so uh, I, I love that this natural birth movement exists, and I love that Ina Mae Gaskin like, has led this movement. It is an amazing 
feminist movement. But there's a flip side to it, which is that there are a lot of her followers, um, midwives and doulas, who um, sort of, uh, some, some intentionally and some unintentionally make pregnant women feel like if you don't uh, give birth without inter intervention, then, um, then you've failed. And either you have failed or your caregivers have failed, the hospital has failed, something went wrong. Um, so they also have this uh, thing about the golden hour, which is like the hour after your baby is born. Um, there's this idea that if you are separated from your baby during that hour, it will screw up your relationship with them for the rest of their life. <laughs> this is not an exaggeration. So, um, so this is, this is, these are ideas that are out there. And so um, I felt like part of what contributed to my feeling like a failure after having given birth was that I felt so empowered by Ina Mae Gaskin when I was pregnant, and then I felt like she had abandoned me. There was nothing in her book about what if you can't, like, quote, achieve it, you know? Um, so I called her up to tell her <laughs> how disappointed I felt. <laughs> Because that's what you can do when you have a podcast. <laughs> it felt like something to achieve. You know, doing it naturally felt like something to achieve. And looking mm, back at those mm. books, I've got to admit, I felt upset. I felt like mm. angry. There's Ina Mae doesn't have any anything to tell me about what happens when you can't do it. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I, I got some of that kind of feedback, too, when I put out the first book. But um, sometimes I think about it. What if we just told people that it always really, really, really hurts? Hmm. Well, that wouldn't be very good <laughs> because <laughs> um, you get everybody so frightened that you know you get people that actively want cesareans, and this is not good because you you know too much surgery it doesn't have good results and. You, just the same way that not enough surgery doesn't yield good results. On the other hand, if you lead women to think that any woman can have a birth without pain, uh, that's a big lie. Also not true, okay. So, like the, what do I got to stop you for a second because that just that feels like an amazing thing to hear you say. Because <laughs> I, I just I don't know. I, I was under this impression, and maybe it was the wrong impression, that um, that that you believed that all women could have like a, a if not a pain-free labor, then at least like a relaxed labor. No, I. I I probably need to write some more stuff <laughs> if I left you with that impression. No, not everybody has a great time. So the result of that conversation is that hundreds of women left comments on that episode. And um, you know, I think we usually think of comment sections as like a place, not a place where productive things happen, right? <laughs> especially in parenting forums, there was very civil debate going on, with some exceptions, but mostly very civil debate. And it has led to Ina Mae Gaskin doing what she suggested on the fly that she might do in that um, interview. She is currently revising her book to accommodate me and my listeners who have responded to her. Um, this is going to have an impact on generations of women to come. 
um, on, on women's mental health and uh, self-esteem and, and it, um, in turn on their ability to be present as mothers. It's pretty incredible. So I did not go into that conversation even with that desire for, for, for that outcome because I didn't know it was possible. It was mainly I thought she and I were going to have a debate and she was going to tell me, uh, she was just going to disagree with me. But, but, but it was really surprising and amazing to have that outcome. Um, also, I just want to say, I think um, after all my experience in public radio, I can confidently say, like, I don't think I could have gotten this, uh, this content on the radio because it was too personal and like niche. Um, yet, I think it's going to have more impact on more people than any story I ever did for the radio um, that, that, that aired on a national program. Um, I think that's true of a lot of the stuff that I'm doing right now. So, um, so pretty early on, I, I realized that the show was not just helping me, it was helping other people, and then I actively started wanting to help other people. Um, parenting, as you may know, is very divisive. Um, you know, you're, you either give birth without intervention or you're okay with intervention. Um, you're a no-cry mom or a cry-it-out mom. You bottle feed or you breastfeed. And I actually think that these dichotomies are an invention of the media. I don't think they're actually real. I think that um, it makes for really good dramatic content on the internet but and for like parenting experts and I don't even know like what a mommy war is but like I think that um, when I talk to real moms in real life we're all like really conflicted about the decisions we make and we don't know if we're making the right decisions ever and we try a little bit of this and a little bit of that and um, and like the, the best um, kind of advice I've ever gotten has just been from other moms being like, I tried this, um, you know, have you ever tried that? And it's a weird thing that I did, but like, try this. Um, so I think that um, I started thinking, well, what if we make the whole show that? Like, we just start doing stories about people doing things all different surprising ways, um, and everyone listening can take a little something away from it and maybe you can empathize with a person that you never thought you could empathize with. So, um, I started looking, like doing call outs on the show for people who might have stories and I actually started doing that very early on and started hearing from strangers right away who wanted to tell their stories. Um, I'm gonna play you a clip from a series that we've done called The Accidental Gay Parents. It's an ongoing series, we're still working on it, with um, a gay couple who very early in their relationship, um, in, their, in their 20s when they started dating, um, one of the partners had a sister who had two kids, they were gonna be taken away from her, um, put into foster care, unless he took them and he had to decide overnight if he was going to take them and there was sort of an ultimatum put to the other partner like if I do this you're doing it with me and we're staying together and like this is a long-term thing and um, and, the, and they did it they took the kids in and then they had to like uh, have a gigantic legal, legal battle um, with the sister in which they were very unsure of whether they would win 
even they were they were proven to be responsible um, caregivers because they were gay and because this one partner is trans. Um, so I'm going to play you a clip from this first first episode in that series. I was playing with Haley. She must have been, I don't know, it was just a couple months in. And we were playing and I was holding, I picked her up and she threw up all over me. I mean like disgusting projectile, oh my God. And when I picked her up, I smushed her diaper and then her disgusting baby poop was like all over my shirt, all over <laughs> her. And like, I like literally, like I didn't even have, I didn't even think to be grossed out. I literally was like, well, now there's like vomit and poop all over us. I like stripped us all down, hopped into the shower with her, cleaned her off. And like, as I was cleaning her off, I was like, oh, I'm a, I'm a dad. And so like, I have a very, very, very clear memory of us being in the shower and her like, you know, giggling and me laughing too, you know, cause it's so gross mm -hmm. that it cycles back around from being gross to being funny. I don't know, it was just like this wonderful, disgusting, funny moment. Um, and also, right after that, I had a moment of real rage because I remembered, you know, I was a political organizer working on gay issues for a long time. And I remembered all of those people that I talked to on their doorsteps who didn't think that gay people should or could be parents. And I had that moment where I just was so I was so angry because here I am cleaning up pee and poop and puke. You know, Riley got croup and I had to take him to the hospital and I thought he was going to die. And I held his hand in the hospital, you know, and like they would have night terrors and they would just wake up screaming because they'd been abused so badly. I had just, I'd fought tooth and nail. I'd given up almost everything in my life to be able to be a dad to these kids who really, really needed someone to step up and stand up for them, you know? And here there are all of these people out in the world who think that I shouldn't be able to do that and that I can't do it and that we're not a real family. How dare they? So this episode also got a lot of comments. Um, and I would say every single one of them is positive. Um, which like also stunned me because you know we were scared. What were people going to say about Tristan? Tristan was scared. Um, but I'm going to read you an example of one of the comments that we got. It's from a guy named Greg. Um, he says, "I was so touched by the emotion and caring that you could tell was conveyed in this podcast. The part about having to go in the shower and clean themselves up, and then being overcome by this feeling of anger that they said he wasn't capable of raising a child. Well, it struck me that I'm they, but only on paper. I'm a white straight male, age 45. Um, we continue to get comments." on iTunes, all, all sorts of places of people who are like Greg saying like, I'm a white middle-aged guy who never thought I could empathize with the kinds of people that you have on your show and this show is changing my mind and, and um, I'm starting to see people differently. And that to me is like, yeah, that's why we're doing this. Um, so, um, 
so, so another way that we're making people see each other differently is in a more intimate way. We're making people, I think, see their own parents differently. Um, we, we get this report from a lot of people saying that they've gone back and sort of like uh, given a lot of thought, reflected on, on what their relationships with their moms and dads are like. So we captured this in a show uh, with the comedian W. Kamau Bell and his mom, Janet Cheatham Bell, who's a writer. And um, Janet was single Kamau's entire life. She split with his dad after Kamau was born. And Kamal uh, is in his mid-40s, and he had just assumed that for uh, after he was born, his mom gave up her sex life. And he kind of felt sad for her about it. And then he kind of got this inkling. She made this comment, and he kind of thought he might not be right about that. Um, it turned out he was really wrong about it. So. We captured that conversation. We asked him to wait to have that conversation until he was on a microphone with her and we recorded it. So. Were you, so what was, were you, you having an active sex, uh, I can't even say it. You were having an active sex life? Yes. <laughs> yes, I was. A, an active, pleasurable, fully. Yes. Fully everything. Yes. Okay. I was. Now, so, and if you ever, and so let me be clear, after the summers were over and, and I would come back and there were times that you would get the, the, uh, the, the inclination, you would just ship me off to Madeline for the weekend. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so that's why you had the queen size bed? Mm-hmm. I needed more room. <laughs> I just thought you liked the big bed. I did. I guess so. I didn't know that it was for visitors. I know it was for company. I thought it was because you liked them. I've, I've always liked the big bed because you had that queen size bed. I'm always, when I grew up, I bought a king. I wanted a king size bed because I wanted a big bed. I didn't even think about. It. I thought that was just what adults had. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Adults. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Doing adult things. Yeah. So. Um, so, so yeah, you know, we, we, we've helped a grown man see his mother differently. Um, and I think we've also helped parents and non-parents see each other differently. There's a real divide, I think, um, especially like if you've been friends with somebody and one of the friends has kids and the other doesn't, um, especially if that friend doesn't want kids at all, it can be really hard. Um, and, you know, like your needs really change. and. It can be hard to stay friends with people. I've certainly lost friendships over this kind of thing. Um, but we've heard from a lot of non-parents that hearing stories on the show helps them to relate to their non-parent friends, to, to their parent friends better. Um, and we've even done it. We did a show where we had a pair uh, who, who one has a kid and one doesn't. We had them have a conversation on microphones, too, and that was cool. Um, but I also wanted to capture the experience of a person who, who doesn't have kids by choice. Um, and so I went to kind of the most famous person I could think of <laughs> in that situation, and that was Terry Gross. And I asked her why she, why she chose to not have kids. Sure. Did you ever have a picture in your mind of what it would look like if you had a kid? Um, I will tell you a recurring dream that I've had in various forms. 
I'm not proud of this dream, so I share it with some reluctance. The dream is, um, I realize, oh, I forgot I had a child. I have a baby, and I totally forgot. And I put the baby in the cabinet, and I haven't fed it in days. <laughs> I've had several variations of that dream over the years. I haven't had it now. I'm like, it's like I'm too old for it to <laughs> like be a choice anymore. You know what I mean? But um, but I'd wake up and I'd go like, oh my god, thank God I didn't I didn't actually forget that I had a baby. <laughs> like what? That horrible. sounds really scary. Do you, do you wake <laughs> up like really in a terrifying. sweat? <laughs> I'd wake up in a total panic. Yeah. Wow. What do you think that's about? Um, I don't really know for sure, but I think it might be about how preoccupied I was with the life I was living and my fear that I'd be too preoccupied to be a good mother. We'd like to call that clip Terry Gross's nightmare around the office. <laughs> um, but... Um, yeah, that was really powerful to me because it was really just about, I don't know, different people making choices and all of these choices are valid. And I think as parents, we're like led to believe that some of like, you, you could make the wrong choice at any time, you know? And so I, I just, I, I like, you know, the power in showing that all choices have their merits. Um, and I think Terry really captured that in um, this next clip I'm going to play, which was the, the end of that show with her. I think the main, you know, I, I think the main thing we want as women is, is we want the choice. And the choice only has meaning, you know, if there is a choice. It, it's great to be a parent when you're not forced to be, when mm -hmm. society isn't demanding it, when they're not making it an obligation. And in order for it to have not to no longer be an obligation, I think some people had to choose to to not have children and rewrite the rules a little bit, and and you know, hooray for all of us. <laughs> and that's sort of that's the spirit now that I try to do. That, that's the spirit that I try to capture in the podcast. Hooray for all of us. Fancy thing. Ooh, hello, <laughs> surround sound. Um, my name is Devin Taylor. Thank you so much to all of you for being here and for those organized, especially uh, Emily Bloom. Really appreciate the effort that went into this, and I'm glad we can all gather on this lovely day. Um, so I'm going to talk to you all a little bit, um, kind of about what happens after uh, the podcasts are created. I come from actually. I should say, in the world of podcasting, many people come from very uh, varied backgrounds, circuitous routes, bring them to podcasting, in part because it's a burgeoning field. And uh, people are coming from film, they're coming from music, they're coming from writing, um, you know, all over, the, all over the place. I had arrived, I didn't intend to be in podcasting. I never thought five years ago that I'd be sitting on this stage at all, um, because I came from a print background. And I had graduated from um, my MFA in creative nonfiction about four years ago. And I moved to Denver. There were mountains there. I thought, oh, this is a perfect place. I'll, I'll write a book here. 
And um, you know, having come from print, and especially coming from a graduate program where I worked on a literary journal and I taught workshops and all these things, I was really used to robust discussion surrounding uh, literature and surrounding art in general. And I moved to Denver and I sort of had lost it. I'd lost my, my classmates, I'd lost that, um, that world of analysis. And it was, you know, it, was, it was such an exciting thing to be a part of, to be able to really think about why certain art was working, why this piece wasn't working. Um, and I would talk to my graduate uh, classmates on the phone and you know, maybe talk about something they were working on or what I was working on. But the conversation that I really would gravitate towards was a classmate of mine who also loved podcasts. That had been our little connection in graduate school. Among other things, we would talk about various podcasts. And nobody, I mean, some people listen to you know, This American Life, some of the big ones, but we were both podcast geeks. And so we would get on the phone and talk for hours about what we were listening to. And really have discussion about it in the way that we talked about writing, really analyzing the merits of it, what, you know, assessing the, what wasn't working, what was um, contextualizing it, all of the things that you do with art. And one day, one of us said, you know, it would be cool as if there was a website that was about podcasts, just like there's websites about music and literature and film that review it, that discuss it, that analyze. Wouldn't that be cool if there was a podcast website? Well, be careful about the conversations you have because that was the start. And I, this was pre-serial, this was pre, you know, all the networks, the spate of networks that came out of that era. This was pre the golden age of podcasting. Um, and we decided we'll make a little website. Maybe a couple of people will visit it. Um, so we created a um, we created a website called the Timber, which everybody pronounces the Timber. Don't worry, everyone does. Don't if you create a website, don't give it sort of a hard to pronounce name. Or if you do, just be okay with everyone mispronouncing it. Um, so we set to work on the Timber and. I don't know that we entirely knew what it would be, but we knew that we wanted to have discussion and reviews of podcasts. We wanted to be able to bring our love of podcasts to the world. In many ways, we were wholly unqualified to be doing this. None of us had, neither of us had made a podcast, but we were writers. We'd you know, come from this long tradition of storytelling. We'd studied it, and we figured nobody would read it anyway, so what's the difference? Um, and so. Um, our timing was, was really good, though, because as we were building it is when this golden age of podcasting began. And, you know, Serial came out. Suddenly, everybody and their, and their brother were talking about podcasts. And, oh, I want to, everybody had a cousin who was making a podcast, which if you're a podcast creator or you're a writer or you're anybody, you always have to hear about the cousin who's doing exactly what you're doing. And you're like, no, they're not. But, um, but in any event, we were really lucky because we had this website that was there to serve an audience that existed. <laughs> and many of them were new listeners and some of them weren't. Um, but what we were really surprised by was how many um, industry people read our website and how many of them, you know, how many radio makers would go to the website. It was a, kind of a total shock to us. And 
we had um, a lot of great response to our interviews and to our, you know, we'd publish like lists of your things to listen to. Um, and we took it really seriously. You know, people, are, people are coming to this website. We need to make sure that we're giving them, I would say bang for their buck, but we weren't making any money. Um, but we would listen to you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of podcasts every week. Um, and when we would post reviews, we started to notice that when we wrote positive things about podcasts, people loved it. They were like, great, I love that show too. But if ever we wrote anything negative, some people were great, but a lot of people would push back a little bit and they would, you know, not only say, we don't think that, you know, or I guess I should say, we thought that people would say, who are you to say negative things about podcasts? Who, like, what right do you have? But the response was more like, what right does anyone have? You know, this is a great, lovely art form. Leave it alone. Don't, don't be negative. And certainly we weren't ripping anything up, but just to even say anything that was at all negative got a lot of pushback, got a lot of support, but also got a lot of pushback. And that really surprised me. Again, having come from this print world of a long tradition of criticism and a long tradition of reviews and all of these things, um, to me, it felt completely natural that you talk about an art form. You talk about what's working, what's not. And you know, I, I, I just didn't fully get it. Um, but what I slowly learned by reading and by having a lot of conversations with people is it had a lot to do with the history of the medium. Um, radio had existed for a really long time as both an ephemeral and as an underappreciated medium. Ephemeral in that pre-internet, something aired, it was enjoyed, and it was, it was gone. And you know, there were certainly recordings of things, but it wasn't, this was you know, pre-digital, pre-being able to go back and listen, you know, the on-demand era. And it was, again, in the pre-serial days, um, there was not quite as much appreciation. And not to say that that was the only line in the sand. There were a lot of successful podcasts pre-serial. Please know that. Um, but that was um, the time, you know, when a lot of people started to pay a lot more attention, and it kind of came into its own as a mainstream uh, form of of art. And having been this underappreciated pocket of the art world um, and of the media world, a lot of creators were like, "Hey, leave us alone. We're doing our thing. We've been doing this for a while." You know, we appreciate one another. Like, we have our fans. We don't need this this analysis and this criticism, this discussion. We're great, and I get that. You know, and and this wasn't true everywhere. I should say, you know, in in Europe and and um, in academic circles, there was a bit more of a tradition of discussion. But in the mainstream media, there really there really wasn't, and there was a lot of resistance to that. Um, with the exception of maybe you know Radio Lab or This American Life or some of these really big, um, large um, you know uh, shows with large resources and large teams and stuff, um, and because we were part of this what was viewed as this like serial wave, I think there was some suspicion about that, um, and it wasn't helped by the fact that those who were writing about podcasting 
we're saying things that were, and I, you know, not us, but we're saying things like, all you need is a microphone, and you can make a podcast. And um, there was, you know, a, a great misunderstanding about how difficult the, the world of podcasting and radio was, and how much training and how many years went into creating it. Um, and you know, so many, so many lists of if you loved cereal, you'll love this show. Like every sh every listener had to start at that point. Um, and so we slowly changed our model and began to really back off of saying anything critical at all. And the space where um, that negative criticism, if you will, lived was in the space where we just didn't talk about a show. You know, we would recommend shows. We'd say, oh, these are, ones were great. But if we didn't talk about it, that was kind of the implicit point. And that was a shame because I think there's a real, um, there's a real power and there's a real importance in criticism. And um, let, me, let me first like pause and say what I mean by criticism because this was something that I also learned throughout these discussions is criticism is widely thought of as negative. You know, and we, we do use it in that way in our, our daily lives, you know. That he, he or she criticized me, or, or you know, some criticism I received. It's negative, right? Um, but criticism in the world of art doesn't mean negative um, discussion. It can, it certainly can be, but it means just analyzing something, contextualizing it, um, reconsidering it, turning it over, reevaluating it. I mean, it's a whole, it's a whole process of analysis and. It's, it can be negative, but it can also be quite positive. Or the best criticism is not a thumbs up or a thumbs down. It's nuanced, and there's a lot of, there, there's discussion of both its merits and what, what isn't working about it. And I think that um, what, I, what I came to realize was that the criticism of other art forms had kind of, in many ways, turned towards that uh, that thumbs up, thumbs down model. You know, there's very great nuanced criticism in a lot of um, print and online journals, but there's also this thumbs up, thumbs down model. And we don't want that in podcasting, and people didn't want that in podcasting. But what I also realized is that the best criticism doesn't give that final word on something. It's not Moses off the mountain with the, you know, the final word, which I think that's the right biblical reference. I tried to check it with Jonathan, but he also didn't know, so <laughs> sorry if that's not quite right. Um, but um, the point being that their criticism shouldn't serve as a final word on something. It shouldn't be, hey, I've listened, or I've read, or I've viewed, and this is the answer, or this is the, the final you know, um, stamp on this piece of art. What it should do is it should start a conversation. And it should be, um, you know, well, here's what I think. Here's why I think it. It should be an argument about why you think something supported. Um, but it should open up discussion for others to respond and to review. And um, what that what that does is it invites in listeners to consider. It also invites um, other creators to consider that art form. Um, so when I say it, um, it invites in listeners, what, I'm, what I really mean in some ways, not only do I mean 
they get to learn about the art form. They get to learn more about it. They get to discover new shows. You know, some of the shows in this you know, room, you know, the producers create in this room, they get to learn more about them. But they also get to learn more just about the medium itself. Um, these discussions allow people to be educated. And I realize that sounds kind of didactic, like, oh, we'll, we'll teach them what, what's right and what's wrong. Um, it's, it's more like um, they build a, a sense of understanding what, um, what they're listening to, um, what larger context, context it exists in, and maybe what to demand of their art. And that sounds really, I know, a little, um, a, a little um, emboldened. But what I mean by that is, I'm going to give an example. Uh, a lot of us uh, came of age or watched, I guess, as the television world radically changed. And it changed in many ways in tandem with the rise of the internet. You know, we, we had shows like Sopranos and Mad Men and all these shows that really changed the, the form of television. And a lot of people, and at the same time, quite a bit of criticism um, online especially, you know, sites like Grantland, RIP, uh, and uh, AV Club, and, and, and just all these various um, online sites that were devoted to discussion, they really rose up and took on the, the task of writing about these shows and writing about them on an episodic level, not just, hey, this is a good show, but taking each one of those episodes and beginning to write about it. And a lot of people would say that that helped, um, that, the, that good television helped that industry, that there was good shows, there was good stuff to write about. But I'd really argue, actually, a little bit of a reverse of that. I think that what that criticism, what that writing did for those shows is it helped viewers understand what they were watching. And suddenly people talked about television in terms of character. You know, this is a character-driven show or, you know, the character development. And it made them more patient viewers. It made them smarter viewers. It made them better able to appreciate the thing that they were seeing. It made viewers able to, I mean, I mentioned Mad Men, sit through a show like Mad Men, which, I mean, sit through, I mean, it's, a, it's a pleasure to sit through a show like that. But it's a very, um, it's, it's, a, it's not a, a thrilling show. It's not a thriller in the way that, you know, um, some of the previous shows had relied on that, that model of blood and guts or crime or whatever. It was character driven. And certainly that uh, led the way to a show like Breaking Bad that was entirely character driven in this large arc. I mean, it was what the show, the point of the show was. And we had viewers that were, you know, we, the world had viewers that were smart enough to get what they were saying. And so criticism allows for that. And criticism encourages that and stokes that. It, it makes people better listeners or better viewers as it may be. Um, and it also helps to build a vocabulary. And that's a big problem we have in podcasting right now. Um, we, we use words like production, like it has a high production value. I don't know that that many people know what they mean when they say that. And certainly not writers that are outside of the, of the world of podcasting. They're just sort of saying, it sounds professional. I think that's what that means. Um, but certainly breaking that open and thinking about the different ways sound can be used and how that adds to our experience, or thinking about the different types of storytelling or interview shows, like they're, they're not all the same. And we don't have a vocabulary that 
um, that guides that, those conversations and that helps people to, to really talk about these things in a way that allows those conversations to get deeper and to go farther. It, they're just, they, they skim at the top. And I think in many ways that holds the industry back. Um, and I, I especially think that um, one of the one of the biggest problems that a lack of criticism um, causes, if you will, is that we don't develop a canon. And what I mean by canon, it's sort of a, a stuffy academic word, but we're in a stuffy academic place, right? So it's okay. Uh, just kidding, Columbia, all of you. Um, but what I mean by canon is I mean that we don't have sort of an agreed upon uh, list of, of creators and, and works that we can study, that we say these are wonderful and these should be studied. And let me say, canons are really problematic. I mean, they have been in the world of, you know, to go back to literature, for the most part, um, they have led to a far over-representation of white males, while you know women and people of color have been ignored. But canons don't have to look like that. That's you know that's these aren't um, inevitabilities. As we um, as we develop a tradition of criticism in podcasting, there's an opportunity to say like, what do we? What do we want to value? What do we want to honor? What do we want to hold up? And if we don't do that, what I really worry about is that the, the works of some of our, our greatest you know, artists, and you know, both past and present, are lost. I mean, there are producers that I can think of that, you know, somebody like Joe Frank, probably a lot of you haven't heard of Joe Frank. And that's like a crying shame, because he's a genius. But of course you haven't heard of Joe Frank, because how would you have heard of Joe Frank? We don't have really dedicated studies other than places like Transom, that's this like really small um, kind of pocket of the world. We don't have dedicated um, criticism and dedicated, um, tr a dedicated tradition of studying and valuing and honoring the works of people who have influenced and changed the industry. And certainly among radio creators and big fans, there are, um, there are people and there are certain pieces, you know, seminal pieces that they point to and say, oh my God, you know, you gotta hear Scott Carrier's The Neighborhood. Like, oh sure, that's a great piece. But we, we can't just have an oral tradition despite the fact that it's an oral medium. These, we need to begin to pin these things down and say this is great, and not just this is great, but why it's great, and how it changed the medium, and what it's doing, and, and this larger narrative of, of an art form. And you know, I mean, there are producers in this room whose work belongs in that canon, and if, if it's not placed there, and if we don't pin these things down, I worry that they'll, that they'll begin to be forgotten and that we won't, we won't grow as a medium um, as a result of that. So, sorry, I got a little off on my canon description. I feel very passionately about that. <laughs> um, but um, beyond, um, beyond sort of the outside looking in, you know, the canonization, the vocabulary, the, you know, understanding the medium, there's also within the field 
a place for criticism and and um, a a, um, a value to that criticism. There's long been a tension between critic and creator. I mean, that's there are there are um, film producers and musicians that won't read any reviews of them. They don't ever want to um, hear any feedback on their work from from the critic because it can be just searing and terrible. But it doesn't. Again, it doesn't have to be that way. And reading criticism of one's work, not only, not only of their own work, helps push their work, but of the work of their, of their peers, of others. There's a, a larger um, context within which it can be placed and it can be discussed. And it advances that work a little bit. There's, um, there's an episode I always like to point to when I think of criticism. Um, it's from a podcast called Love and Radio, which probably many of you are familiar with, and if you're not, I highly recommend it. There was an episode a few years ago called um, A Red Dot. Actually, I can't remember if it was A Red Dot or The Red Dot, which I probably should remember, but it was some article and Red Dot. And um, I don't want to give too much away about it, but it uh, concerns sex offenders and the sex offender list. And when it came out, there was a lot of backlash to it. There was a lot of, of negative response among both fans, but also among radio makers, because it was really putting this, um, this person front and center, this um, sex offender, and giving them a microphone. And at the time, I was still um, editor-in-chief of The Timbre, which, by the way, I don't know if I've mentioned, but no longer exists, because nobody paid us. <laughs> but. Um, we, there were three of us by then, and we talked about this piece, and there was a lot of disagreement among us, and we reached out to some radio makers to talk about it, and there was a lot of disagreement between, among them. And, because we, you know, we didn't know, should we hold this piece up as great? Is it, ugh, like, you know, there's ethical obligations, and we took our, our job really seriously. But what, I slowly realized is the fact that there was so much disagreement was what was great about it, was why it needed to be honored and why it needed to be held up. Great art provokes us. It makes us think differently. It makes us angry sometimes. Sometimes it makes us, you know, contemplative. It can it have a number of reactions, but it provokes us. And I, by talking to, uh, you know, talking to radio makers was realizing that that wasn't something that was maybe um, being celebrated enough. And it was perhaps um, something that needed to be uh, discussed. And so by holding that work up, and we, we did ultimately, um, and saying, you know, this is great and here's why, I like to think that we started a conversation not just among fans, but among the industry to say, hmm, I didn't like that work, I didn't like the way it made me feel, but maybe there's some value in that, and maybe that's something I want to think a little bit more about. And for sure, many producers are already having these conversations. I don't want to suggest that they aren't, but many weren't. Um, and you know, ultimately, where this comes down to, or what this comes down to, is that these discussions, not just, they don't just further the, the quality of the work, but they, they further our considerations of the work. Um, I'm sure many of you have seen the discussions about S-Town and missing Richard Simmons that have been, you know, really in the in the news lately, if you will. 
Um, and by the way, I'm thrilled that certain shows are getting some criticism and there is some writing. It does tend to be just a handful at the top. But these discussions have centered on the ethical implications and whether we want to be talking about shows. I mean, if you're not familiar, they're both kind of um, investigations of the personal lives of two individuals. Um, and there's uh, you know, maybe some voyeuristic elements to them. There's certain ethical considerations that they raise. And we're talking about them now. Um, but we need to be talking about them a lot more. And it can't just be these top shows, these, these you know, top big teams, big resources, big networks. It needs to be everything. Because if it's not being talked about, we continue to remain a niche market, a niche art form. And for some people, that may seem nice. Um, and there are some benefits to it. Um, but without that attention, we don't have the audience. And without the audience growing, continuing to grow, we don't have the advertisers and we don't have the respect that an art form really um, needs in order to grow. Bless you. Um, there, there is no mainstream art form that exists without a body of criticism, without a tradition of criticism. And that may mean that it's inevitable that as podcasting grows, it will just gain that. But there's a moment now to do it right and to not have that just be sort of hijacked and taken by Vox or whoever who's going to write you know, the next hot take or, or want to do you know, um, kind of that thumbs up, thumbs down model. There's an opportunity to take a really thoughtful approach to, to, to the art and to talk about it and to begin these discussions and to push back a little bit on stuff that maybe we don't feel like is working and talk about why and not to be afraid of the way that isolates us among our peers, um, both as creators and as fans. Um, and I think that moment's now. And so I guess what I'd encourage is to begin writing about these things, but also to embrace that criticism and see it not just as a chance for us to improve our audience and build a canon and all these things, but as a chance to really grow as an art form and kind of continue to expand the boundaries on what podcasting can do. So thank you. Um, as I get my mic together, I realize that probably a lot of you are not used to sitting in one place listening to people talk. You probably want to push pause right now and, you know, or take me into the bathroom with you. Doesn't work so well, right? The way podcasts do. Um, so if you have to go to the bathroom, I would suggest you do. But do come back because I'm not going with you. If you need to pace quietly, because that's how you're used to listening to people, you could pretend you're driving. Yeah. There you go. Awesome. Um, so, oh, and yes, I want that. Uh, no, I think we're okay. Um, it's really thrilling to be here, and a little bit scary. Uh, 
Okay, let's not watch my thing right now, actually. Yeah. I'll wait for, oh, I, you know what I need to do, I'm sorry. I'm, the, you, this is the scared part. Okay. So, my podcast is called Commonplace Conversations with Poets and Other People, and I'm going to start by just telling a few anecdotes that I think are important to how I came to make this podcast, um, uh, why I do this podcast, and what I really want to talk about is some of the ethical complications and considerations around uh, my own podcast in the hope that um, this will be useful and meaningful um, to other people who make podcasts and other forms of art. Uh, so uh, my oldest son is 17. When he was about 14, he is a very well-behaved child, um, like really had never broken the rules. Um, but he managed to figure out the uh, uh, password to my husband's computer. He got into the computer and downloaded something. We assumed it was porn, and we confronted him, and he said, no, no, it was actually Mark Marin." <laughs> and um, I believe him which is kind of amazing. He had been listening to hundreds and hundreds of hours of Mark Maron, and my husband had some video, you know, Mark Maron had, a, had, a, had part of his uh, oeuvre, uh, had a visual component, and my son really wanted to see it. So I had been listening to podcasts for a long, long time. I love them, particularly the, the narrative ones. But I started listening to WTF so that I could know who my son was hanging out with all those hours in his bedroom with the headphones on. And um, so just put that aside for a second and know that um, uh, my podcast has only been going since June, so I'm very much of a newbie in this, in this world. Um, our 27th episode will air on Tuesday, which is not ready very anxious about that. Um, but um, it's a long-form podcast. Some of the conversations that I have with poets and other people, mostly poets, um, are up to two hours long. Um, and so I will play a few clips, but it doesn't excerpt well. Um, and I feel very committed to the long form. I feel very committed. Um, there are some ethical considerations for me around having a long form podcast that's very, very lightly edited, um, but importantly, that it is edited. Um, and I'll talk about that. But before I do that, I need to go back for a minute. So I'm 45, and um, I grew up, obviously, in the pre-podcast era. Um, and I have a really complicated relationship to audio. And I think that um, I can't tell the story without telling that story. So my mother, Diane Wokstein, was a famous storyteller. Um, she was the official storyteller of New York for a long time. She told stories in churches, in schools, libraries, in the parks department, all over the country, all over the world. And um, my experience growing up was, of course, listening to her tell stories in public, rehearsing stories um, in private, and listening to all the sort of great American revival of storytellers telling stories. Um, she also had a radio show on WNYC called Stories from Many Lands. And I was an only child, and I was a very well-behaved 
behaved, quiet child. And um, I was allowed to often sit in the recording studio with her while she would record um, her radio show. And so I learned to listen, and I learned to be quiet, um, and I learned to value stories and storytelling. Um, the other truth of this uh, childhood was that my mother traveled a lot. Sometimes I would go with her. Uh, we went to Haiti a lot, and I have a lot of memories of falling asleep late at night um, with storytellers telling, you know, late into the night in Creole, I couldn't understand what was going on. Um, but mostly she traveled without me, um, very often, very far, and for what felt to me as a young child, for a very, very long time. And when she would travel, she would leave reel-to-reel -reel audio of her telling stories for me. And when I would miss her, I would play, I, I had, someone would help me set it up and, and I could play this audio of her. And so, you know, I didn't really think about this until I was preparing for this presentation, but my mother's voice um, and the audio of her was two things. On the one hand, it was the only way I had to kind of bring her close um, when I was really missing her. And her voice was also the proof of her absence. And I think that um, the human voice, I really liked what Chris Lydon was saying the other night, uh, last night about the human voice. Um, I think that it, it holds so, um, you know, so much power for us that we're, that we're only just beginning to really investigate. Um, so, it, for a long time, and even today I'm a poet, um, I've written a bunch of books, um, and as I said yesterday, that has involved a lot of learning what it feels like to speak into the void, um, or what feels like the void. And um, so around, um, I'm trying to decide which order to tell this story in. So I have this podcast where I talk to poets, and um, someone asked me at dinner last night um, why, or something about the poets, and, I, and, I, and what I said was, you know, well, first of all, poets are my friends, um, and so they'll agree to talk to me. But there is something kind of, I think, more interesting than that about talking to poets, because poets and artists, um, but not like screenwriters, um, are people who have passionately and dedicated their lives, like in the most deep way, to something that will never make money and that has no status in our culture at all. And it has a very small audience, and in some ways it's the opposite of journalism. And yet there is a feeling among poets and among people who do read poetry and love poetry that, that if we didn't have poetry, we would lose something essential to our souls, to our culture, to our language. And so when I'm talking to poets, I'm not just talking about poetry. In fact, we don't talk about poetry that much. I mean, we do, but not that much. But we're talking about all of these other things, essentially about what it means to try to live in the world um, and balance your passion and your practical life, your material life, your family, and this thing that you feel, on some level, totally committed to but at the, on the other level feels like maybe it's frivolous or maybe it's actually abhorrent. You know, when you tell someone you're a poet, they take a big step away. Um, so I'll play one uh, little clip. Um, this is Jericho Brown who is a, I'm, I'm mentioning this for a reason, because I think it gives some context. 
Um, he is a uh, black gay poet who lives in the South who was not and is not accepted by his parents. So he's talking about poetry here, but I think that there's that context. Um, this is late in the conversation that I have with him that includes a long conversation in which I am horrified that a journalist in talking about um, Jericho's life as a poet has called his family and reads some of his poems, particularly poems about um, the childhood abuse that Jericho suffered to his father and mother. And I'm like, what? You know, how could, you know, and so we talk about this for a long time about what are the ethic, you know, the boundaries and how does he feel about this. Okay. You know, I'm actually fat. Sorry. I have just asked him a question. Do you think poetry is a socially efficacious form? Fascinated by the idea that it's not a, an effective way of responding. Um, you know, what, what happens when we write a poem is that we do work on ourselves first. And so, you know, the only person that you can really save is you. So if I figure something out, if I start asking a different set of questions because I'm writing a poem or because of some realization that I make in the midst of writing a poem, uh, then I have done something that changes my mind, right? And if I change my mind, if I truly change my mind, I change my actions. Um, and it's true, I mean, you know, I don't have a bunch of books, I only have two books. But it is true for me that every time I finish a book, I feel like I can live a little bit better. Like I feel like I do feel a little more liberated, a little more free. I do feel like, oh, I figured this thing out that I thought I would never figure out. And I'm a little bit more comfortable with myself in the world. And because I'm a little more comfortable with myself, I can be a little bit more loving. <laughs> and more loving, in particular, to people who are somehow supposedly not like me, or don't look like me, or, or don't have the same background that I have. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. Don't you? Do you feel this way when you finish a book? Um, and I'm going to play one more little clip here. This is Kristen Prevole, um, where it's late at night. Um, and uh, we are alone at um, the office at NYU, and she is describing to me um, her new project. She uh, left academia. She's a hypnotherapist and um, teaches writing and grammar in prisons. And she's talking about a book that she's uh, just written, which uh, is actually written by her alter ego, Mina Lloyd. Um, and it is a pornographic novel that is the centerfold to a conceptual project in which required her to contact a real banker on Craigslist and um, in return for this real banker reading uh, her pornographic novel that her alter ego wrote, she responds with a night of romance and that forms the uh, conceptual part. You see, poets are very interesting, more interesting than you might imagine. All right, let me, this is related actually. We're moving from gossip to This is to not gossip. right. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> this Jericho Brown, says Kristen Prevole. Okay, in any case, um, I can't play that. We have, we're at some technical problems. But Kristen says um, that the, one of the most important things for this project was that it enabled her to basically lose her mind um, the way many great male artists and um, thinkers of history have lost their mind and gone really insane. 
in a controlled fashion so that she was able to take care of her child and not be carted off to an institution and that she created a storm um, that was manageable and that one of the, the, value, the benefits of being a writer is being able to create storms that you can manage. Okay, great. So um, this is, these are the kinds of conversations that I have and um, I need to go back again to just explain why I thought this was a good idea for me or for anyone that I start this podcast. Um, so in 2013, um, my mother was in Taiwan and we had been arguing um, very strongly about um, my memoir, Mothers, which was not published at the time, which is about my mother and about poetry, becoming a mother, and my female mentors. And I uh, told my mother that I was going to publish the book after a long back and forth argument. And she uh, told many of her friends that uh, she emailed her friends saying that, that this news that I was going to do this without her um, approval has, would, had broken her heart. And she then suffered within a few hours an aortic dissection and died. Yeah. So, you know, and it's interesting, you know, I can tell you this story as a story because it has become uh, somewhat separate from my experience to the extent that I'm able to talk about it now. Um, but uh, it certainly was not the case that that's how I felt at the time. And it was a year of uh, deep trauma and grief and despair, um, organizing her literary estate, cleaning out her apartment. Um, I stopped writing. And I, I did feel that I had killed my mother um, uh, and that I should probably not write anything ever again because um, you know, even this kind of fragmented literary basically unsellable uh, memoir could have such a devastating effect um, on my own mother um, that I'd better really be super careful. And not just super careful, stop. You know, cease and desist. So um, a, a, about a year after my mother died, I started researching and writing a series of lectures um, that I had agreed to do before my mother died. And I, I ended up writing about um, the history of confessional poetry, uh, it, which was useful because that's a history of poets hurting themselves and other people very publicly. Um, and um, photography, which is also a really interesting medium um, in terms of the representation um, of other real people um, in art. Um, and feminism, motherhood, uh, I was clearly working through how do I manage this tragic experience and this devastation and how am I ever going to be allowed to speak again. Um, and I had a six month break in the period of delivering these lectures across the country where it felt to me like the lectures were over and I was looking for something to fill in um, that space that I had lost because I loved giving the lectures, I loved people listening to me um, which I don't normally have that experience so much because I have three sons um, and two teenagers. So um, that doesn't happen. And then um, I also loved these conversations that I would have with poets as I traveled across the country. We'd have dinner together before the lecture or after the lecture. We'd talk for hours. Mostly they were middle-aged women with children who were all talking about like, their disappointing marriages and their the you know their children weren't what they had expected and their careers were totally fucked up and you know but we were also talking about like can poetry do anything can it mean anything can you know you know is this worth it like what essentially we were saying we were asking each other how to live 
you know? And I love, I mean, I needed those conversations so deeply. So I came back and I had been listening to all these podcasts, I'd been listening to Mark Marin, and I was like, you know, I think I could do this, like without the ego, without that kind of ego. Um, and so I started. Um, and I, I did about 13 episodes. Um, and then the election happened. And things changed. Um, I mean, the poets that I had been speaking to, we were all very much speaking about social justice and politics and race and gender. Um, we, were, we were talking about that already. Um, I was interested in talking about that. I, I, I kept asking those questions in part because what I was asking those poets was not just how to live, and I didn't realize this until about you know, 10, 13 episodes in, but I was also asking them on some level, like, am I okay? Am I a killer? Or can I go back to writing? Is writing an okay thing to do? Is it, is it, is it going to solve more problems than it causes? Like, on, on a very sort of infantile psychological level, I may have killed my mother. Is writing and art and poetry worth that? Like, that's a crazy, crazy way of thinking about it. But I think that's basically what I was asking over and over and over again. So we were already talking about all kinds of systems of oppression. But when the election happened, uh, you know, when we weren't crying, we were, we were really talking about that. Let's see if everyone has become Jericho Brown or if my good friend Doug has stayed himself. Doug seems to be gone. Oh, there he is. So um, this is just a few days after um, the election. I was in San Francisco. Um, my friend Doug, uh, who's been a dear friend of mine for 20 years uh, and is a genius poet, D.A. Powell, um, was teaching a class already that semester about out, it was called outrage poetry and activism, and they were doing all kinds of things outside the classroom, like making a pinata with as a Trump effigy, um, and having people, um, if you smacked it, you, then you could get a poem. They were drop lifting, which they were um, putting poems, they were wrapping poems around products in supermarkets um, and leaving them there as opposed to shoplifting. Um, they were doing all kinds of things with poetry in public spaces um, to, and trying to really think about what activism would really look like as, po as a poet. So um, the, the only place that felt endurable after the election was in the was either at public protests where I was screaming in a crowd full of strangers, or in these rooms one on one with um, artists who, you know, would sit there and you know cry with me and talk with me and say things like this. I, I think in a well ordered society in a world where everything's working correctly. If um, your neighbor's house catches on fire, you can call the fire department and they will arrive and they will take care of everything. I think now we are at a moment where we realize it's up to us to run in the burning building ourselves and save whoever's there. Um, and I think that when that moment 
becomes clear to you, um, then you don't need to stand around asking people, what should I do? How should I get involved? I think that the question that um, before the election I was asking was, what should I not say? What is hurtful to others? Um, what, what guest are you not going to say? Is there something you won't write about? Is there a limit to what poetry can do? And after the election, I think that the questions um, started to shift towards what can I afford not to say? How I must speak? And what do I do when speaking is not enough? Um, and uh, I think that I, that I started to feel like um, I had built a platform. Um, you know, my podcast has many fewer uh, unique downloads than m many other podcasts, but for poetry numbers, it's large. It's really large. Um, and so I then all of a sudden felt like I have a platform. I have um, people who really want to act. How can I shift the podcast um, to not just be a place of, of sort of talking about poetry and, and how you live your life, but also, you know, how can I change the systems that I'm really interested in, in changing, um, both through the dissemination of po poetry and books of poetry, which we do. Um, I can talk maybe later about the economic model on poetry scale. Um, uh, but also um, in um, talking with people who uh, represent a diverse and inclusive um, experience and um, de demographic in every way. Um, what I started to realize, though, was that I was back to some of the same ethical questions that had plagued me as a poet um, that I now was encountering as a podcaster. And I'll just briefly talk about, uh, just mention them. Um, like, what are my ethical responsibilities to the people who are on the podcast? Obviously, they know they're speaking into a microphone. They, they, they know it's that other people are listening. Even though it's an incredibly intimate space, we all know that, that strangers are going to be listening. I'm going to broadcast it. That does not mean I don't still have responsibility to, um, to the people who are talking to me or to my audience or to myself. So, you know, what do I do if I suspect the person I'm talking to is drunk or high? Uh, what do I do if I suspect that someone, perhaps a incredibly important white feminist who is potentially suffering from memory loss but has not told me this, says something that I realize in the editing sounds vaguely racist. And in the moment, I did not ask her the right questions to push back on that. Um, and I'm not sure if she's actually just not remembering something properly or if she's actually, this is her viewpoint. Do I leave that in? Do I take that out? Um, what if I know the episode you know, that, that is going to air on Tuesday? Maybe you'll listen to it. At the end of the episode, it's a poet um, in her 70s um, who I, is one of my most important influences. And at the end of the episode, she says um, that the people who are protesting Trump are fascists. Um, because anyone who engages in groupthink um, is a fascist, and she really supports a radical, uh, sort of anarchic, individual uh, kind of philosophy. And you know, here, I mean, I, I, I've never met. She's not pro-Trump. She's just anti any kind of group, anything. And uh, you know, 
uh, I'm, I'm asking her a whole bunch of questions about this. And in the course of describing this totally wacky thing, she's already said in the episode she talks to the, to the dead actively. I mean, it's, the, you know, poets are weird. Um, <laughs> I push back, I push back, I push back, and she is describing um, a black poet um, who, who got up at a reading and was like, fuck Trump, fuck Trump. You know, of course, I was like, yeah, fuck Trump, fuck Trump. And, and this white poet said, calls this black poet a fascist because anybody who's doing this like group think. And um, you know, me and one of my producers is in the, in the audience and the two other ones, we went over this again and again and again. Do we keep this in here? You know, she sounds lunatic, first of all. Um, and she and and you know w what if the people of color in my audience are like she just called this amazing black poet a fascist and then they you know start to hate her um, uh, and ultimately we did leave that in um, I felt like this was a part of her um, very bizarre very very radical nonconformity that was really true to who she was. So um, I think that um, in order to try to figure out what to leave in and what to take out, in order to try to think about what, I, what the podcast is doing and the ways in which just like I, I try to figure out a, a kind of series of ethical guidelines for myself as a, as a poet, which is weird, you know, poets don't have ethical guidelines. They don't. We, we're not journalists. Um, we don't have a code of ethics that's imposed on us. And by and large, um, poets kind of think, well, nobody's listening to me, no one's reading to me, and I'm not making any money. So maybe I don't need a code of ethics. Um, I don't think that's true. I think poets do need a code of ethics, and I think podcasters need a code of ethics, um, absolutely. Um, so I, I started to think about like what would be my code of ethics as a podcaster. Um, in order to do that, I had to think about um, what are my goals and intentions for this podcast. I think it started as a way of making a community and making myself less lonely and making myself feel heard. I mean, I just, uh, when I saw Hillary, I had brought my book, Museum of Accidents, to give her as a gift because I thought she would like it and I've been listening to her podcast for so long and before I said anything, she said, I really like your book, Museum of Accidents, and I give it to women who have had miscarriages. I had no idea that Hillary had read my book in a million years. It would not have occurred to me. Um, I do know that people are listening to my podcast. Um, and so uh, I guess my goal, I have a very small goal for my podcast now, which is to dismantle white supremacy and the heteropatriarchy. <laughs> you know, yeah. So um, if that's my goal, um, then um, when I'm trying to think about who to have on the show, um, when to air the episodes, what, when I, ed when I do my light editing, what do I leave in, what do I take out, I'm asking myself, um, does this further my stated goal? Uh, it has to further that goal to, to, to be part of it. Um, did I do my job, meaning did I do enough preparation? Did I ask the right questions? Did I push back enough in that moment? There's an episode that I won't air at all um, where white guy <laughs> just sounds like an ass and is an ass, basically. And, but it's kind of my fault because I didn't, I don't mind putting someone on who's, who's an ass. I mean, I, I'm, I don't want to create any airway for, for you know, 
homophobia, racism, misogyny. I'm not interested in that. But someone can have complicated ideas that I don't agree with, but only if I'm, if I'm pushing back and saying, you sound like a racist fuck. You know, I didn't say that in the moment. And so he's not going on. Um, do, the third is, do I risk as much or more, reveal as much or more about myself as I do about the guest? Which is part of why I keep my, you know, most of my own mistakes in there, moments where I just sound like such a moron, um, and also why I feel like it's important for me that it be such a long form with all the mistakes and, you know, kind of the mess ups. Um, uh, is including a problematic something worth it, in, again, in, in terms of my stated goals? So am I going to let, um, am I going to let? Um, uh, if there's a black poet who is using the N-word, um, how do I feel about that? I feel fine about that. Um, uh, same black poet um, who's also straight um, using a homophobic um, epithet, how do I feel about that? Well, in that conversation, I, I asked him over and over and over again, why are you using that word? And why are you writing this way? And um, I don't like his explanation, but he explained himself, and that stayed in as well. Um, and then the last two things I'll say is that, you know, I think that the podcast, like Hillary was saying, many people have emailed me and written to me and to say the way in which it keeps them company is really profound for them all different kinds of reasons why, illness, um, commutes, um, and the way that, that it's helped them um, understand something about contemporary poetry or empathy or um, the things that, that these poets are saying is really profound. And so in some ways, like I go back to that feeling that I had as a kid of really missing my mom, of feeling very alone, of not having very much control over that, and the way that the human voice was, you know, this, this comfort on the one hand, but also as soon as we are building a community and we are speaking to each other, we have this very profound responsibility, um, I think, t t for one another. And so I try to listen and listen and listen and listen more, I'll always um, listen to, I could never make this podcast alone. That's something I learned that is very important. I need other people to listen to it at every stage. Um, and yeah, I think that's all I'll, I'll say right now. Yeah. Okay, I think we've got time for a few questions. Um, if anyone wants to kick us off. Yeah. Hi, my name is Savannah. Uh, it's not so much questions, but for Devin, um, I would strongly suggest and I would be willing to work with you on it. The Pulitzers just came out. And I think maybe you're right. There should be a Pulitzer for new media criticism. And that might be a good thing. Um, I just had Hilton Alice on my show Friday, uh, who won the uh, Pulitzer for Criticism, first theater critic since 1978. Mm. So I think you're on to something right there. Um, to Rachel, I just want to quickly say you did not kill your mother. And um, out of context, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, you didn't kill your mother. Um, she was just afraid you were going to out out how much she left you alone. 
and she was embarrassed, so don't feel bad. And um, I would like to talk with you ladies later because I think um, one of the things I'm hearing from all of you is that um, we all need to be hearing each other and getting to know each other and sharing. And as a woman of color who is trying to learn all of this herself, I have a radio show, I'm starting this podcast, I think that would be helpful to have more people sharing their experiences with each other. So I'd be more than happy to meet with you ladies as well as others because I think that's worthwhile. I'm sorry, what was your name again? I'm sorry, I came in late. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's Devin Taylor. Devin, Ms. Taylor. Um, I have a question. How can criticism be embraced without the notion of creating a standard which can exclude others, either by content or by podcaster? Yeah, I think it's a good question. Um, uh, can you guys hear me okay? I don't have this turned on. I'm pretty loud, though. Um, so how can, just to make sure I understand your question, how can criticism um, be embraced without creating a standard that can basically be exclusionary? Is that right, right, because I do agree that a standard needs to be created with criticism, but it can create a ripple where it can be discriminatory. Absolutely. the content of the podcast, and how do you safeguard or create a fail-safe mechanism where it won't lead to that? Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't have like the, the silver bullet answer, but I think the answer is just a continued dialogue. Um, I think we're already seeing that in in other mediums where they have been exclusionary through the, the canon and the criticism. Um, and that people being aware of that and pushing against that, I think to some degree, there it's inevitable that if you're going to have criticism, you're going to be defining terms, you're going to be putting up boundaries. But I think continuing to push at those boundaries and question them and ask what they what they mean and what they're there for at least begins to respond to that concern. Can I add one thing to that? I mean, in poetry, we have a long history of criticism, and it absolutely has been used as a gatekeeping strategy, um, and has you know served to kind of reiterate. Um, uh, white, straight, male values um, uh, of universalism, of transcendence. And I think, you know, in practical terms, one thing that's going to help is to have more women, more people of color doing the criticism, more non-traditional criticism, which is definitely going to happen with podcasts, and to have more creators who to have less of that of that dichotomy between the creator and the critic. So that, you know, to for I do think that it that um, uh, creators um, need to be doing more criticism and need to see that as part of um, the role in the community. And that, that starts to really break down um, that, that gatekeeping um, tendency that criticism has. It's a better answer than mine. <laughs> We're in this together. Yeah. Oh, turn it back on. All right. All right. I said it was a better answer than mine. I have a question for Hillary, if no one has a question. Um, I was thinking about, there's one, I, as you know, I love your podcast, and I you know, have listened to, I think, almost all of it. And there was a moment recently on um, a fantastic episode about how to talk to your child about race. And um, in the introduction, there was a word, there was one moment where I um, really cringed. And um, it, you say something like, um, and now we're going to talk about you know, ways of talking to your children about race that aren't painful. 
And I was thinking about, like, to me, that moment felt like you were imagining your, your audience is largely white. Um, and um, I felt like, wait, why should it not be painful? And I, 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 it was one of these really small moments where I felt like when I'm trying to talk about the harm that you could do to your audience or to your guest, um, uh, I don't know that other people heard it that way. I don't know if um, you know people of color in your audience had that same response of like, wait, why? You know, I felt drawn in as a white person. I was like, oh, I would like to hear how to do that without it being hard. Um, but if I was of color, I, I think I would have felt like, fuck you. Like, why should it be easy? Um, and I don't know. I was wondering if you've had, because I think you do an amazing job. Like, when I heard that, I was like, wow, this is the first time I've ever had this feeling of discomfort um, listening um, to your show. Like, how do you manage that? Do, do people? So I'll say that yeah. that episode is one of our more controversial ones. That was a tough one um, in the editing process, too. Um, so that entire episode came out of a question from a person of color right. who generated the idea for the episode, um, who said to us, I feel like a lot of the talk you do about race on the show is coming from um, is coming from people of color. They're generating that stuff. They're talking about how they talk to their kids. But that's not really relevant to me because I'm doing that. I want to know how white people are talking to their kids about race. That, so that was the, that's the setup for the episode. We are answering this listener's call for, for an, an episode. And so the way we set up the episode was to generate it entirely, we got an expert who has done a lot of research on um, how white people talk to their children about race and how they can unintentionally um, kind of create racist kids um, by taking the colorblind approach and by simply assuming that by not talking about race they're, they're going to not be racist, which back, it backfires. So, so that's the context. What we did was we uh, solicited questions from the audience to play on tape for this expert. And we were surprised by, by the simplicity of these questions, mm -hmm. that they were so basic. Um, and we were like, well, but that's where they're all at. And so that's the questions we're going to play. The criticism then was that the questions were not complex enough. But we were going off of what the audience asked. We could have gone a different direction, and now I wonder if we should have, where I generate the questions myself based on some of those questions, but we take it further. Mm. In the moment, this is a thing we've done too with sex advice for parents, and then people complain later, well, but you didn't answer the question I have. And I'm like, well, we, we did many call-outs for questions and you didn't ask the question. We're going to do another one. We'll ask, send it in then. So I see this as the beginning of a conversation, a very complex conversation, and we started it at this very basic level. The cringy moment you're talking about was, uh, I don't think I was talking about my uh, discomfort necessarily. I was talking about the discomfort that we sent. It, in, you can hear it in the, in the people asking the questions. You can hear them clearing their voices and not knowing how to even find the words to ask the question they want to ask right. um, for fear of offending. And so that's what I was referring to. Um, anyone else who has a question? 
Okay, one more, one more here, and then I think we should wrap it up. Um, Rachel, you have mentioned that uh, my question is, how do you create a code of ethics that will safeguard misinformation or information which can be racially charged or discriminatory or content charged or discriminatory? Um, well, you can't really succeed fully. You can only try, right? Um, you know, our work is not to finish the job of social justice, but at least start and and be doing it as much as possible. Um, you know, one thing is that the poetry world, which maybe none of you are in, uh, has been rife with recent controversies, um, particularly racial controversies. So um, before Mr. Horrible became president and, and started fucking up everything, including the language. Um, so um, I, I have, I think white poets have been asking themselves um, for the past few years um, how to um, negotiate between um, the way in which art, as someone else said, really needs to be provocative, even offensive, um, uh, at times, while also um, not harming others and particularly not contributing to systems of injustice and oppression. So we've been asking those questions. Doesn't mean we've been getting it right. Um, but I think, you know, um, the main thing is to have a lot of people listen um, before, well, not a lot, but the right people listen. Like my 17 year old son. Um, Listen, has, has been enormously helpful to me. His moral compass is fucking on track, um, this kid. And he'll listen. So um, one, one example is uh, I recorded an episode with Claudia Rankin, who's one of the most important um, African-American poets. And she's written a book called Citizen, which is probably the best-selling um, book of poetry since Howell, um, just to give you a sense of it. And um, the book is about um, racialized violence, in, in part. And um, it was one of the early episodes. And I was, I was recording a few weeks later over the summer my intro to that episode. And I try to give some context and stuff. And my son, the same son I keep talking about, um, was away for five weeks. And one of the things that Claudia says in the episode is, poetry is the place where we investigate feeling. There's no other place where we so deeply investigate feeling. And I found that to be so moving. And so I recorded this whole episode in which I was talking about um, the way in which um, as a poet, you know, one of the reasons I go to poetry is to try to investigate this feeling that I was having about my son's absence. Um, it was the first time we'd been apart for so long, and it was, it, I wasn't scared, I wasn't worried, I was some adjective that I did not know existed. And that is the place for me as a writer where I'm going to try to write and write and think through where the language does not contain um, the truth of what it feels like um, for me to be separated from my son in that context. Um, OK, so I'm about to air the episode. And I listen to it one more time, the intro. And I realize this has been a summer where the police have murdered so many black teenagers and black young men. And here I am talking about you know, my you know, investigation over the, my, my separation from my white son who, and I had said, I know he's safe. I'm not worried. It's not that. 
Um, you know, and, I'm, and this is the intro that I'm putting before Claudia Rankin. I think this sounds really tone deaf, to say the least. But I hadn't heard it. I'd listened to the intro over and over again. I couldn't hear that. And then when I realized, I think I might be about to really fuck this up. Um, I had my son listen. Uh, I had Nicholas listen. I, Christine, I, you know, I had my husband listen. Um, and, and you know, honestly, some people were like, "It's fine. You're just speaking your own truth." You know, um, that was not enough. That did not feel okay um, for me to do. Um, and I and I ended up writing a, a, a different intro. There was no way for me to tell that story in this context that felt um, appropriate for for. Um, the conversation with this amazing woman, which was really the thing I, that I cared most about. It, it's true that, sh that my conversation with her helped me manage this time in my life with my son, and that was very profound for me. But I had to think about who my audience was. Um, so, I mean, that, those are small things, um, but, but, you know, I mean, a, one other real quick one is we had an episode with undocupoets um, who are um, undocumented or previously undocumented. I had to make really sure that these, you know, there was one um, poet who mentioned the immigration status of his sister. Um, I had to make sure that that was okay for us to air. Um, but I definitely felt like it was worth airing the episode um, to have these voices and these experiences listened to by, by lots and lots of people who maybe don't have any idea about you know, what it means to be an undocumented um, poet. I think that's the end of what I have to say. Okay, sorry, I didn't mean that. I sort of I accidentally cut you off. Yeah. I really didn't mean to, no, okay. but that was wonderful. I just want to give everyone um, another round of applause for powerful talks. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, so we're gonna take a break now. Um, we're gonna re gather again, I think 1.30, um, for talks that are gonna be focused more on narrative. Um, we've got talks from um, Here Be Monsters and Arrivals. And I just wanna say also that we have these listening stations that are set up um, around the room um, with a sort of representative or exemplary podcast from each of the, the people who are speaking today. Um, so we'll leave those up for about another 15 minutes, and they'll be up during the break. So please, you know, feel free, listen, uh, kind of get examples of, of the incredible work that's on display here today. So thank you so much.